the spiritual tests of Daniel's life did not get any easier. And in the same way, so also the spiritual tests of our life, God does not intend for them to get any easier. need not tell you that we have a fantastic passage of Scripture lined up for us this morning. Daniel chapter 6, you all know Daniel in the den of the lions. Daniel chapter 6, one of the most beloved and well-known stories of our entire Bibles. Probably the most loved story in the book of Daniel. So come in here to Daniel chapter 6. This is of course the final episode in the Daniel story. Now we have a challenge facing us as we turn to this passage of Scripture. We have a challenge every time we turn to the Scriptures, but it's not always the same challenge. Sometimes we have the challenge of just a difficulty of the teaching, such as our challenge in Ephesians chapter 1. The, the, the thoughts, the concepts, the truths in Ephesians 1 are so profound that that's our challenge, to, to wrestle with those and to get our arms around what Paul is saying to us in Ephesians chapter 1. Sometimes we have the challenge of different cultures and different time periods. The Scriptures were written to cultures that were not our own culture, time periods that were not our own time periods. And so sometimes we have to struggle to understand what these words meant to that culture in that time period to understand what they mean to us in our culture. So sometimes that's our struggle. Sometimes it's the struggle of obscurity. We might be looking at a passage of Scripture that's not very well known. We haven't perhaps looked at it before, not something that you've read through in your devotional life very often. And so it's a passage of obscurity that we have to wrestle with. Today, our challenge is none of those, because today our challenge is the challenge of familiarity. This story is so familiar to us, we all know it so well. If you have any background in the church whatsoever, then you have been exposed to Daniel in the Den of the Lions since your earliest Sunday school days. I remember coloring the lions and the Daniel sitting in the cave and everything. I just remember the story from all the way back because this is one of those love stories of the Scriptures that has really found its way into all of church life. So we have this great familiarity with the story of Daniel, and the challenge of familiarity is this. That is to stay focused upon what God would have for us because here's what our brains tend to do. When, when you think you know what's going to be said, your brain tends to stop listening. And in the same way, when we turn to the spiritual truths, when you think you know the spiritual lessons that God has for you, your soul tends to stop listening because you seem to or you think you know what's coming. That's always the case when somebody's telling you a story. Anybody ever told you a story that maybe they've told you before and they forgot they told you and you know how the story's going to... Don't you just sort of tune out halfway through it because you know how the story's going to be? The same thing can happen when we turn to passages that are so familiar like Daniel chapter 6 is we feel like we know the story and we can just sort of lull ourselves into not paying attention. So our prayer this morning is that God would grant to us the blessing of attentiveness and the blessing of just approaching this story with fresh eyes, just anticipating what He might have for us this morning. So as we turn to Daniel chapter 6, we realize here there's there's some themes that are still going on, larger themes in the book. We've talked about the purpose of the book. The whole point of the book is the sovereignty of God over the nations and how God is in His sovereignty over the nations. He allows and He even brings about suffering and persecution for His people. He ultimately delivers His people from that. And very often, as we see in the book, He delivers them through it. But 
the overall point here is the sovereignty of God over the nations and how God has all this plan. This is part of His plan. As we said uh, from the words of the psalmist, God holds the heart of the king in His hand like the stream and He directs it where He wishes. So this is the overall point of the book, but we're also seeing these other themes that have been playing themselves out. We'll just kind of summarize them now since we're at the end of the episodes. One is, of course, the theme of yet another king and another kingdom. So here comes another king, here comes another kingdom, and Daniel is still in place. Daniel will be in place until the Most High God is no longer pleased to have him there and moves him somewhere else. Daniel will remain until God is done with him there. Yet kings and kingdoms rise and fall and come and go. So that's one thing. Another theme that we see, and as we work through chapter 6, we won't necessarily point these out. Just I'm pointing them out now so you can kind of have them in the back of your thoughts as we look at this. But another theme that we will see is the theme of the constant harassment of the kingdom of evil towards the kingdom of good. That's been a theme since chapter 1. The kingdom of evil, the kingdom of darkness, just harasses the kingdom of good and the people of the kingdom of good. That We've seen this and Daniel, and of course his three friends, and now back to Daniel again in chapter 6. So the harassment of the kingdom of evil against the kingdom of good, and then the last sort of overarching theme that we're going to see played out here for the final time in Daniel chapter 6 will just be the theme of the, the godliness of God's people as they live in a world of hostile wickedness and how God will preserve them through that And most often, in fact, always in the story of Daniel, they come out in the end of that hostility to the better. They come out being exalted, being lifted, being vindicated. So that's a theme of the hostility of the kingdom of evil towards God's people. But God's people maintain their holiness and their faithfulness through that. God preserves them through that and then they're exalted at the end of that. So those are a couple of overarching themes that we come to. So now let's begin the story. The story begins as we did last week at the end of chapter 5. Remember, all these chapter divisions are artificial. So the story really flows from one episode to the next. So to begin with chapter 6, the last verse of chapter 5 prepares us to begin into chapter 6. And the last verse of chapter 5 reads this way. That very night, because remember the the setting here, once again from chapter 5, was Belshazzar was on the throne. Belshazzar was this really poor king and the Persians are, are at the gate. They're seizing the city, or they're sieging the city, I should say. Not seizing. They seized it later. They're sieging it now, and they're at the gates, and Belshazzar is drinking and making this big public spectacle of how comfortable he is inside the gates of Babylon, and the whole point, which we saw at the end of chapter 4, was God will humble the proud. So Belshazzar is the, the picture of the proud man that God humbles in such great fashion that we saw in chapter 5. Now, Belshazzar is killed in chapter 5. He passes off the scene. Now, Babylon has fallen. All of this is a foreshadowing, a premonition of Revelation 18 when the kingdom of evil, Babylon, falls. But Babylon falls here in chapter 5, and now the Persians have taken over the kingdom of Babylon. And that's where we begin at the last verse here. That very night, this was the night that Belshazzar died, or was killed. That very night, Belshazzar and the Chaldean, the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 100 and satrap, 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. So let's stop right there. And let's begin by getting something out of the way that's kind of dull. 
but is needed. You need to hear this. It's not the most exciting part of the message, but this will prove helpful, I believe. When we speak of King Darius, you should know that secular history knows nothing of a King Darius of the Persian Empire. That's important to know because you may come across something that's something to the effect that the Bible claims that there is this King Darius when history shows us there never was such a thing as a King Darius. That's, that's the kind of thing that the History Channel likes to show. That's the kind of thing that the Discovery Channel likes. So we need to face it head on. One of the things that we come to here in the book of Daniel is we talked over and over about is that Daniel is one of those books that is the favorite target of those who don't have a supernatural view of Scripture. They view Scripture as the work of man, not supernatural in origin, not inerrant. And we've talked about, like last week, we talked about Belshazzar. And we talked about how the Bible portrays Belshazzar as the last king of Babylon when secular history for a long time thought that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon because secular history knew nothing of Belshazzar until we said last week, a few decades ago, they discovered the, the cylinders of Nabonidus. Remember that? That talked about how Nabonidus set up his son as the co-regent. His son was Belshazzar. And for the last 10 years of the Babylonian Empire, there was a co-regent in Babylon. His name was Belshazzar. So secular history vindicated the scriptural record in that sense. Okay, So a similar thing is happening here. We're told that the king on the throne is this king Darius, Yet secular history knows nothing of a Persian king by the name of Darius. So the first thing to say is this. It really doesn't matter if secular history knows about King Darius or not. The scriptures do. Now, when we think about ancient history, we know so little about ancient history. There are so many holes in what we know about ancient history that it should bother us in no way that secular history doesn't have a record of King Darius. We're talking about history that's over 2,500 years old. And the only records for this are copies of copies of copies of, of things that were originally written on clay. So there are so many holes in what we know about the, for example, the ancient Persian Empire, that it really is of no concern to us or little concern to us that secular history doesn't know about a King Darius. So that's the first thing to say there. Our faith in the Scriptures does not depend on secular archaeology vindicating what the Scriptures say. We believe what the Scriptures say, and sooner or later, archaeology will prove that out, just like we saw last week with Belshazzar. So with that being said, there are a couple of options that we should be aware of as to who this fellow Darius is and what sort of relationship he has here to Daniel. So there is a king by the name of Cyrus. Secular history sees Cyrus, or understands Cyrus, to be the king of Persia during this period. Now the Bible is well familiar with King Cyrus. Ezra chapter 1 talks about King Cyrus, about how he declared the edict that the captives could return to the land of Israel. Uh, Isaiah knows of Cyrus because God prophesies through Isaiah, he calls Cyrus his tool that he will use. Also, the prophet Jeremiah knows of Cyrus. So the Bible knows of King Cyrus. King Cyrus was the king of the Persian Empire at this time. But who is this fellow? Darius. The options that we have are this. Number one, King Darius wasn't the king of the Persian Empire, but instead he was the king of Babylon. Babylon 
when it was conquered by Persia, did not become the capital of the Persian Empire. Obviously, Babylon was the capital of the Babylonian Empire, but when Persia conquered it and added it to their holdings, to their territory, Babylon was not the capital of the Persian Empire. So it might make sense that the king of the Persian Empire wasn't located in Babylon, but instead he set up a under-king or an under-regent and to rule Babylon, and that possibly was this fellow Darius. So perhaps he's not the king of Persia, but he was the king of Babylon. Now that would make sense when we look down to, to the last verse of chapter 6 of, of, of Daniel. The very last verse of the chapter says this, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So that would kind of make sense. If there were two different people, Cyrus was the, was the big king and Darius was the underling king, and Daniel summarizing the events by saying Daniel prospered under the reign of these two people. So that, that might make sense, and that's a possibility. A stronger possibility is possibly this, that Darius and Cyrus are the same person that are called by different names. So that might be the case, particularly when we think of the fact that we were just told at the end of chapter 5 that Darius was 62 years old when he became king. We also know that Cyrus was in his young, young 60s at this point. So that, that would put them at the same age. That, that could be coincidence. certainly doesn't prove anything. But it might support the fact that they were the same person going by different names. So we might ask, well, why is he called Cyrus here and Darius over there? Well, remember the language thing. We were talking about, okay, there's Hebrew, and then there's uh, the, uh, the Aramaic language. Remember how we talked about this section of Scripture is written in Aramaic? Well, then there's Akkadian, which was the language of the Babylonians. Now there's Persian. That's four languages. Doesn't it make sense that there would be more than one name that the same person is called by when you're talking about four languages being bounced around? You ever known somebody that in one language they were sort of called by one name and another language called by another name? Right? Like uh, James. In Spanish, James would be Santiago. So it's kind of the same sort of thing that maybe Cyrus and Darius are the same person by different names. There's these different languages going on. So that would, uh, that would possibly make sense. And that also coincides with the final verse here of chapter 6. Chapter 6 again ends this way. So this Daniel prospered during the reigns of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That could also be translated, he prospered during the reign of Darius, which is to say... Cyrus the Persian. Could be translated that way. We also know that Cyrus, the king of Persia, was also by heritage related to the Medes. So that would make sense why he was called Darius the Mede and also Cyrus the Persian. That would kind of make sense too. A final possibility is that they, they are the same person still, but this, this Darius is not his name, but Darius is his title. Because Darius literally means one who holds the scepter. All of that is incredibly dull, isn't it? And really is not of a, is of limited help except to say when the time comes that you turn on the history channel and you hear them say, the Bible talks about King Darius, but there never was a King Darius. You know, okay, there's more to the story than that. So with that being said, this fellow Darius is the king. He may be the same individual as Cyrus or he may be an underling of Cyrus, but either way, he's the king of Babylon. So now let's begin the story in earnest. Again, verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It pleased Darius 
to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents or high officials or governors of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. So here we have this um, this Darius who now becomes the king and under him we find once again Daniel rises to the top once again just like he did under Nebuchadnezzar. Under Belshazzar, he sort of lost favor there, but he was never completely out of favor. Under the king Darius, he now rises to the top once again. Darius wisely sets up this system of 120 satraps or overseers to oversee his kingdom, as it says, to make sure there's no loss, to, to keep watch over the finances, of the, over the comings and going of the kingdom. And over those 120, there were set three above them, and of those three, we're told that Darius had a mind to make one of them supreme. Verse 3, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, or high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So the king intends to make Daniel now the head of all three. And so this here's this Daniel who will once again be put into a position, apparently, of like a, a prime minister or second in command over all of Babylon, similar to as he was before. So here we see this man, Daniel. Now, remember last week we said that he is in his early 80s right now. He's at the minimum 81, 82, perhaps even 85. He is an elderly man. And not only is he still in favor, but he still is in such favor and he's still doing such a tremendous work that he is now going to be elevated to the top position. So we see a picture here of a man who's truly finishing his race well. He's not just marking time. Now he's in his 80s. Boy, I sure have worked hard all these decades. It's time for me to take a rest. Instead, he's still going as strong as ever. He's finishing his race well. He is finishing his calling well, but also we're going to see that he's going to have the greatest spiritual test of his life at the end of his life, just like Jesus, just like Abraham. He's going to have the greatest spiritual test of his life at the end of his life. So we see this man, Daniel, who has been prepared over all these centuries to, or centuries, over all these decades for this final and this greatest spiritual conflict, the spiritual test that he that will come to him. That means that what this says to us is that the spiritual tests of Daniel's life did not get any easier. And in the same way, so also the spiritual tests of our life, God does not intend for them to get any easier. His intention is that the successes that we have in spiritual trials will set us up for greater spiritual trials and greater spiritual trials and greater spiritual trials. Instead of saying to us, you know what? I've been faithful for so long. I have served God in all these ways. I'm now 80 years old. I'm 83 years old. Can it just be okay if I just sort of coast through this one? Here is the picture of Daniel who at the end of his life is not only still finishing running his race as hard as he can, but he will face the greatest of all spiritual trials and he's ready for it because God has prepared him over the years with lesser spiritual trials through which he was faithful then as well. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.